I think one of the more malicious ones out there are now the calls to elderly, to grandparents. That thing happened to my grandmother. There you go. And, and this was years and years ago. She got a call from a Tim, who's my brother, and said he was in jail and needed money. And my grandmother then called my mom. It's like, Tim's in jail. My mom's like, oh my God, Tim's in jail. <laughs> Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I'm your host, Megan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. It's been a hot minute since we've recorded a podcast. And this season, it is now hot out. (laughs) The sun is shining. There are flowers blooming. It's like time of year yes yes summer is right around the corner um there you know we have hope the doldrums of winter are over (laughs) yes so this week we have on mike cavanoff who is the chief insurance officer at fusion mga uh and he's coming on to talk about cyber insurance and cyber breaches which is i think is super fascinating interesting just because you know i think we, we it's something we all maybe not have been personally affected with, but probably have had some sort of touch of having our data compromised or maybe work somewhere that, you know, there's been a breach. So I think we all can kind of relate to, to what Mike has to talk about. All you have to do is look in your spam email right now. I bet we all have like 15 different scam emails from today. You know, it's oh, just yeah. so prevalent. So I'm sure um, you know, he has a lot of interesting insights on it. Yeah. And, and, and just lots of little personal act antidotes. And Mike has had a great career of, you know, going at a startup, building it up and, you know, taking on a new challenge at another startup. So I'm really interested to hear what he has to say about that. So with that, let's bring him in. Good morning, Mike. Welcome to the Defense Never Rest. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks for having me. You know, I, 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 actually got in touch with you because I think you had posted on LinkedIn about, you know, a, a, a career, I wouldn't say change, but you changed positions and you, you invited people to be like, Hey, reach out to me if you want to talk more about it. And I was like, Hey, I have a podcast. I'd love to talk more about it. <laughs> and you invited you- this on yourself <laughs> is what she's saying. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> but, you know, right now you are the chief insurance officer of Fusion MGA. Um, but I don't want to talk about that just yet, but that's what spurred, you know, this, this conversation is you announcing that, that new role. Um, but I want to talk about how you got there because, and this is something I talk up to every single guest on, on this podcast. I talk to them how they got to where they are because everyone has such a different path and I find, I find it interesting. So all my lucky guests have guests and listeners have to listen to me asking people about things that I think are interesting. <laughs> so, you know, with that, like, how, how did you make your way into insurance? Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting, I guess, I guess, path. Uh, so I started life in college on the computer science side, actually. So first two years were spent entirely around computer science. High school was computer science and everything. And then I transferred schools and my parents said, you have to work for a year before we'll let you transfer. So I worked at my uncle's insurance agency and it sounds weird, but I fell in love with insurance. I actually really enjoyed insurance. So when I moved to a new school, I found someone that actually had an insurance degree and this is 2004, 2005. So it wasn't very common. Uh, In Philadelphia, I went to St. Joe's University. It was the first year that they had an insurance program taught by one guy the entire thing went through the whole program but it was great he had the opportunity to uh, it was a guy named sean sweeney he had helped build philadelphia insurance taught everything but that kind of led me down the path into you know a small wholesaler outside of philadelphia uh, called apogee insurance group i was employee number six luckily what we had in common meaning me and the founders of the company is that they also had tech backgrounds. So since 2008, roughly, I've been really in the industry focused on technology, cyber liability, just because you know the kind of natural progression from my 
background in computer science into a love of insurance, as odd as that sounds to most people that do love insurance. <laughs> but uh, really, I spent 12 years on the broker side, um, you know, placing risks, figuring it out as we went along. And then, you know, in the very beginning, there was a lot of spaghetti against the wall to see what stick. But uh, it's really led me to an interesting path from within the kind of developing cyber liability marketplace then leveraging my technology background actually stayed within that realm. I got my certified ethical hacker designation a couple of years ago, maybe three, four years ago. Uh, but really ultimately that led me towards the insure tech, the dark side of insurance, so to speak, into the insure tech space where I was able to really find kind of a niche into how we can kind of take insurance in a different direction, right? That's how I saw implementation of you know, APIs and all kinds of great technology, but ultimately the move to Fusion brought me back to my, uh, you know, my, my first love, which is cyber liability and how we can incorporate technology to kind of make it more accessible to people. I had a lot of conversations when I was growing up in the marketplace, explaining what cyber liability was and getting thrown out of the door by CTOs and CISOs and making them realize that this was important. So now where I am is kind of the culmination of my career and really prioritizing the kind of, uh, you know, the combination of technology and insurance. So when you mentioned uh, the dark side, like referring to insurtech, yeah, that's the first time I, I've heard that. Is there a general like disdain in the insurance industry towards insurtech? Because is it because it's new and like different? I, you know, what, what's the general feeling about it? Yeah, so my first company ended up being acquired by Berkshire Hathaway. So it was a Berkshire Hathaway company, which is not really open to the idea of things that are new. <laughs> uh, but it just so happens within the cyber liability space, and this is on the commercial line side, where people see InsureTech MGAs as like, you know, oh, you're the new kids in the block. Everybody wants to disrupt everything. And right, <laughs> we don't necessarily focus on disruption because there's a lot we can do, you know, with within the realm of what's already going on, but they see it as, you know, it, it's the new kid on the block. Insurance pretty much operates the same way it did for the last 330 plus years. So to bring something new into the mix, which is that insure tech, it gets, there's a lot of doubters, uh, but I think it's fun. It's interesting. It's kind of a new spin and how we can get insurance out there. Do you think there's like a level of like fear? Like, oh no, this, this might take over our, our, model that's been in place since 1880? <laughs> so I don't, yeah, I don't think it's so much a fear. I think that they will, I mean, people are interested to see how it will develop. There's a lot, I mean, the idea, the mentality between technology and insurance, they're drastically different. Everything from the, you know, the urgency, a sense of urgency, the timelines, the lexicon, everything is drastically different between tech and insurance. Right. So traditional companies have difficulty embracing those ideas because they see that it could be, you know, interrupt the insurance intermediary of you know, the agents and brokers and wholesalers and the traditional stuff. So there's only a fear in that it'll drive the incumbents to have to figure it out themselves, because that's really what happens. We drive on the insure tech side, drive some sort of innovation. And then the incumbents either, I mean, through a couple different, whether it's acquisition or, you know, just hiring a whole company to bring in the aqua hire, what have you, just forces them to act in a certain way to really meet the customer where they didn't realize they need to be met. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, I personally am very interested in the intratech type, type market because I, I think it it adds a certain level of automation and kind of simplifies things in a way that can like that can be automated. Um, you know, it, it, like why have, you know, a, if you can get around having a physical person come out and appraise your home and you can do the same thing via drone or whatever it may be, and that's more efficient or less expensive to me, it makes sense. But then I do understand the flip side, the value to having a face-to-face -face interaction with someone coming to your home and assessing, you know, whatever risk or issues you might have be having going on. I see both sides. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I don't think they're, you know, it's one or the other, but um, I definitely see the benefit to a lot of the technologies that, you know, you're seeing with the intertech market. Yeah, definitely. It's funny you bring up the inspections by drones. I had 
However many years ago, I had the opportunity to speak on a panel for the Community Association National Conference, um, and it was privacy rights around drone usage for inspections on roofs. It was fascinating, enthralling. Uh, the conversation we had, I mean, ultimately, it was something that was my first exposure to the idea of moving away from an adjuster and inspector into taking drones from a you know, a condo perspective, it just goes up each floor and it's able to see if you've got a grill on your balcony, if the roof looks like this. Now there are some issues if you snap a photo of somebody that you shouldn't and that's <laughs> why they brought me in uh, to talk that through. But that was my first real encounter with taking that traditional process and incorporating some technology. Um, where we exist today, uh, it's usually leveraging APIs, right? Technology that allows for the integration of the insurance sales process, whatever, in anybody's front end, right? I think it, it makes it easier for people to buy insurance, easier for people to find the right insurance. Because uh, I don't think, I firmly believe there's no best carrier in the marketplace. There's a best carrier for the individual and the company. So sometimes that is all about the people bringing technology in there to speed it along. Um, and, you know, it's incorporating different things. I think the industry relies heavily on how it was done for the last 50 years, 60, 70, 800, you know, whatever it is, we pride ourselves on being able to utilize that. Uh, but every now and then some technology wiggles its way in there to kind of change everything. It's fun. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's funny when, you, when we're talking about the drones. I sh One of our my partners is like a drone fanatic uh, <laughs> and I was like oh god I should have brought Nate in too um but you know at that seminar um did you know did you learn any interesting tidbits about you know the, the liability associated with using you know drones for for just that that purpose like you mentioned like you know it could be an issue if you take a picture of you know someone in your apartment <laughs> like that's definitely <laughs> a privacy violation um but were there any other tidbits that you you gained from that yeah, it was actually, so it was a, their legal conference. So there was just a ton of attorneys talking about privacy rights and whatever issues in condo associations. Um, but I mean, really what, I mean, even, even for my preliminary research, I realized that this is a thing. Like I didn't know that people are using drones in this fashion. Like I had been insuring them from you know one extent or another, but I didn't realize that it had taken this next step into what it could be. Um, and really it kind of gave me a sense of the use of drones, both in a commercial sense and residential, kind of in moving back and forth and all the requirements. And I like to geek out on a lot of the technology. So understanding what the geofencing is and utilizing how can they protect airports from drones? Like, do they need to use that same thing for specific condos? I don't know. It was, it was a really interesting experience, even from my own research and then hearing, some of the perspectives from people on the panel were pretty funny because we all had such interesting backgrounds. One yeah. was like a 15 time condo association president. <laughs> I never thought I'd be on a panel with that guy, but you know, he was really interesting. He brought something interesting to the table about using a drone. From the insured's, um, insurer's perspective, are, is the use of drones as effective or do you miss the component of, of someone out going, you know, physically going out to inspect, let's say, you know, a property, for instance, or is it is it better? That's the hard part, figuring out what's the cost benefit, right? If you prioritize the expense related to it, then yeah, it's great, right? It's cheaper sure. than the drone. But if the drone, if you only, if you know that you're only looking for grills on balconies, then yeah, that's great. But the things that people know to look for because they've been doing it for 20 years are definitely valuable. So as carriers that operate in different spaces need to prioritize one thing over another. If you are trying to be the programmatic, efficient carrier, then yeah, the drone all day. But if you're working within, you know, hands-on industry, you rely on the agents, the brokers, and this kind of intricate that, involvement that and relationship. Exactly. Right. <laughs> then you've got to prioritize the human touch. Like, yeah. It's like Chubb. Chubb is going to go with the hands-on guy who comes out there with the gloves and goes through everything. Whereas somebody like an insure tech may think that efficiency is the way to go. It's kind of a battle within the industry uh, that is pretty interesting. But in reality, I mean, and this might be my own ignorance on... <laughs> 
how drones work, but someone has to operate it or are they, and someone has to review the footage. Mm-hmm. Right. So you still have it is not 100 percent automated. You're still having human eyes and touch on it. You're just in, doing an inspection in a more efficient way For, rather than having, you know, Joe, the inspector climb up, you know, six stories and, you know, checking each apartment individually. You can do this part much more efficiently and faster and then review what you see. Yeah. But the, inter- the key part about it is taking, I think, taking that technology and training the people who have that 20 years experience and knowing what to look for and bringing the two together, right? If you can get these people and there's always a delay in training people on new technology, especially when they're used to this way, same thing with underwriters, right? It's the same exact thing with underwriters, training them on how to use technology and different things, publicly available information to do their job. And I think there's a combination, right? And that's kind of that next step or whatever we call it. Drone Insurer 2.0, right? 1.0 is you either got 20 years and you've been doing it hands on the street, and the other side is just drones. 2.0 is kind of getting a little bit closer, and eventually you find that kind of happy medium. Yeah. Have you seen any um, increase just in, you know, just in, in your career with unmanned surveillance? Because I'm hearing sort of snippets about that from different people in the industry of, of going towards unmanned surveillance. You know, I guess it's it's probably very useful in a lot of personal injury things, especially. But um, have you have you had any experience with that? Not really. So where I've always been is in that tech and cyber and professional liability space. We haven't had much involvement with inspections. You know, that's on that that property and casualty general liability where you need to inspect things at whatever time. And I guess kind of on the cyber side, the closest would be ultimately these automated scans. Right. If you had to relate the two, the implementation of automated scans is somewhat similar into utilizing a drone to see something from the outside. Right. We right, can all. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So bringing that idea into different lines um, is definitely really important. It's advancing the product, I think, on the cyber side in particular. It's really advanced in understanding within the industry. I wanted to take a step back because we kind of jumped over. We, we kind of jumped. I don't know. We jumped a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but because I, I, I keyed in um, when you mentioned this, when you started at Ap- Apogee, you were you were higher number six. So you're you are not new to this startup environment, you know, that. So how did that experience? H- how was that experience coming in? Because you were pretty green, I would say, coming in and being, you know, employee number six at that point. So how was that coming in early in your career at a startup versus now where you're much more established, you kind of know what's going on and you're, you're in another, you know, startup scenario again. I love small businesses, right? I love the idea of being able to, I love the idea of having no job descriptions of having to step up and do whatever you need to do. And, you know, really early on in my career, or literally I graduated on like a Tuesday and started to work on Friday because it was all hands on deck, right? There was no opportunity for anything else. Um, I think what's key about that small company is really the culture. We had a really strong culture of driving each other. Uh, and it was a lot of, I mean, our workspace that I had when I first graduated was me and two other guys in a room, I mean, not much bigger than my current office here in my house. <laughs> Just talking on speakerphone, listening to conversations, it gave me a really a great opportunity to learn, right? Learn about different relationships, different conversations, how you positioned it, just the tone of conversations, questions, how they drive everything. And really, I've tried to, over, the, over my career, really bring that to each of the small businesses or startups. My current company is very much a startup. Those who I was with prior, they were a startup, right? They just closed their series B last year. Um, we're moving towards closing our seed right now. Right. So I love the idea of a small business where you can build it. Like I, I really liked before I left Apogee, I loved seeing the fact that we still used some processes that I had created and fumbled my way through creating. Right. And obviously they adapt and they change, but I think it gives you a unique opportunity to build something and ha- carry that throughout your career and being able to save it. You know, I did that, 
right? People talk about how happy they are with Boost or Apogee or whoever. Like I helped build that. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a unique experience. And and also with that though, when you have, I, I feel like you also have to be okay with, you know, a process that you may have built, and later on people decide mm, this doesn't you know work mm-hmm. for us anymore. You you have to like kind of detach the emotion away. From like, oh, but I made that. Not taking it personally. <laughs> not taking it personally. That was, that was my idea. Why are we changing it? There is definitely an element of that where you're just like, well, I, I know it wasn't that efficient, but I really like the fact that I built that report or that process, what have you. But it requires a culture that is always looking to improve. Right. It's very much you have to be more focused on the culture itself of the company to having everybody get better. Right. I don't, doesn't mean you have, everybody has to be there for a hundred hours a week. It doesn't mean that you've got to have all the cool toys in the office or spend all the money in the world on this, that, and the other. If you've got the right culture, if you've got a group of people that are trying to advance the company, because whatever leadership brings you on, if it's motivation to build something new, if it's because you have equity, what have you, building a company that can adapt and evolve for the future. I'm kind of more proud of having that process that can evolve maybe keep the intent of what it was, but you know, I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the room by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm, I'm definitely open to seeing those, those developments, but it is, as long as you maintain the right culture, I'm less concerned about keeping the same process. Yeah. And, you know, and since you've, you know, from Apogee to Boost uh, and to, to where you are now, you're often probably often involved in the hiring of new, new talent. So, you know, what are some things that from your experience that you look for as, you know, real strengths when you're looking to hire someone new to bring on to your teams? Because if the teams are small you, you, and your budgets are, are probably tight, you have to be very careful about who you pick. Yeah. So at high, I hire tough, you know, I think to, and it's painstaking sometimes if you know you need somebody, I'm not just looking to hire, you know, meet in the seat, so to speak. I, I want to find that person who's going to be there for, you know, that three, five years, right? Yeah. Sometimes, depending on the role, I like to find people who are in their second job, right? Just over the years, I have found a kind of a, a path of people that have spent time in a role that they thought was going to be great and now have a better understanding of what they're looking for. Uh, I try to find people that, you know, are just more engaging, depending on the seat, obviously, that have, and what's unique in the industry, people that have an insurance background or an interest in insurance that are willing to take risks, which is you, you would think there'd be more of them in the industry, but there's not. Uh, I am uh, pretty, I'm less risk averse than most of the other people in the industry, or at least that I've interacted with, which has allowed me to take on these startup roles. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's huge. Hiring the right people can change the trajectory of the company, right? You can, if you can bring on one person who can operate in a certain way and handle everything, that's it's vital to the growth of the team, I think. Yeah, I imagine you're looking, you know, for someone much like yourself who's like a willing to take a few risks, think be a, a jack of all trades in a way, and you know, put on a wear a lot of different hats to be to push oh, the yeah. ball forward and get the job done. There's one question I've asked every person I've ever interviewed, except for maybe one or two. <laughs> uh, it's the last question I ask, and it just kind of drives the conversation on the way out. Uh, what's the most interesting thing you've done in the last year? That's it. Work personal doesn't matter. And I've heard answers from build a garden with my bare hands to <laughs> get married in India and ride an elephant to getting married in Rome to uh, skydiving over the Great Barrier Reef. I really don't care what it is. One, it's an opportunity for me to hear what you yeah. like, but more importantly, how you talk about it. Right. I want so, someone who's going to share something that they really like and try to, you know, I, engaging with them. Okay, I'm so jealous of these people that you've interviewed. <laughs> I love the, that I've done in the past year that even comes close to any of that. This is actually, we're in kind of a tough period as you would imagine, because the most interesting thing people did for a while was get out of the house. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Sourdough sourdough the, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the hobbies you've started. Yeah, been, yeah. It's been interesting. There are people learned a new language. Everybody was baking bread at one point. I got into baking bread at one point. Uh, the great British bake off was a, that <laughs> was great during that time. But I think the most interesting one I had was the guy who built a garden his backyard he had never built a garden before had never done anything and he went out 
got the wood, looked, watched YouTube and built this really nice vegetable garden for his wife. And he was pumped about it. And I was excited after uh, hearing about it. Yeah. I didn't go build a garden, but it was still an interesting story. Yeah. <laughs> well, may, and maybe he brought you in some vegetables from his garden. You never know. We did not bring him on, but <laughs> I, you know, I know, but the story was great. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I hope he's enjoying his garden. <laughs> yeah. It made an impression nonetheless. Yes. It did. Him and the cheesemonger. That was a good one too. Oh, yeah. Cheesemonger. I made his own cheese. Oh, I didn't know that it was called a, it's a monger? Yeah, cheese monger is like it's the overall thing, but people, he, he went to cheese making. That's pretty interesting. Why didn't we do that during the pandemic? Why were we that? <laughs> I did. I was making cheese. I was making, well, I was making ricotta cheese. Oh, okay. That's what you do if you have like extra milk. And I forget exactly how I do it, but like, you know, at the time, I think it was like at the time we had a double order of stuff that came to because you were panic buying everything and we had all this milk and we're like, well, we better, we have to make, you know, we can't let the milk go to waste. So I figured out how to make ricotta cheese and it, it, it's, I don't remember how I did it, but it's shockingly simple. I think it was just like lemon juice and milk or so. I mean, it's so easy. Um, and it was good. Fresh Most fresh of those fresh things fresh. probably are when you yeah. really figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> You're officially a cheesemonger. I know. I haven't. <laughs> I think we also took a mozzarella cheese making class during that time too. So yes, I have two Something types talent. of cheese down. No cheddar, but two of the easy ones. There you go. <laughs> All right, the conversation's really taking a turn. <laughs> I, I warned. I warned Mike when we were on the phone. I was like, "Look, sometimes we really derail this if we go off topic." <laughs> I'm, I have the same. I talked in a lot of stories, right? Like getting that out there, the real. So it leads in different directions sometimes. But I, I do want to hear though. So you're you're at Apogee for for many years, and it get it gets, you know, it, it, did it get purchased by uh, Berkshire Hathaway while you were there or after you left? While I was there, three months after I started. So went oh, from okay. the, you know, all over the place, figuring out as we went along, building the processes, even though they probably weren't that good at that time, to Berkshire Hathaway requiring us. And Uncle Warren is very generous in, you know, all the resources that you get just being a part of the organization. So it gave me a lot of opportunity to grow the company quick, have additional resources that we didn't anticipate. Uh, I had the opportunity to, you know, travel and meet with different carriers and it gave me, gave me a great opportunity. I had dinner with Warren Buffett. It was wow. you know, a great experience, but uh, yeah, the Berkshire acquisition kind of allowed Apogee for, to have organic growth, right? So that's a lot different than a lot of people in the industry. We grew organically. There was no acquisition of different agencies and brokers to really ramp those numbers up. So I've seen the almost not quite bootstrap, but that same idea of growing organically. And then when I jumped into the startup space, it saw that kind of venture backed kind of path and how the different things, but it was interesting. So I can't move on without asking about that dinner though, because I ha I mean, what is Warren Buffett like in, in person? Because I hear he's a cool dude. <laughs> like that's yes, what I've he's heard. sharp as a tack. I mean, this is like seven years ago. Yeah. Uh, but he was sharp as a tack. He came up, he was on top of everything, having great conversation, told some jokes. Um, you know, it was a really interesting conversation. Then we had an opportunity to hear him just share some stories, uh, which was pretty cool. I mean, and what, I mean, I, what were your like internal feelings before, before that? Like, I feel like I would just be a blubbering idiot and I wouldn't. Yeah, even, I'm anxious I, just thinking about this. <laughs> It happened seven years ago. Yeah. When I when I get nervous, I talk even more. So I like what what was do you remember what was going through your head? Or were you like a cool cucumber? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it was literally he was on top of it. He drove a lot of the conversation. There was a couple of us in kind of the conversation, one of which was very familiar with him. So he was able to jump in there, but he took control. It was a uh we talked about what we had done in Omaha that day, which led into a story about the Nebraska Furniture Mart and how we acquired that. And that really drove the conversation in different directions. He was very open to just hearing the random thoughts that would come out of people's mouths. Wow. Uh, but then he, he was very much open and genuine at the time. It was a good conversation. 
uh, told us about how his neighbors, when he first moved into Omaha, thought he was all uh, unemployed because he would just constantly, he wasn't like going to the office every day. He was talking to people, trying to raise money. And uh, yeah, they all thought he was a bum, just yeah. you know, getting money off everybody and then jokes on them. Yeah, he was probably driving like, you know, a used Honda Civic too, you know, like not calling any attention to him. There's all those stories that he drove himself to the country club that night and drove himself home. Wow, I love it. You know, yeah. That would have been a good answer to your interview question about the most exciting thing you've done in the past year. Meeting every now and then people would ask me what have I have done yeah so everybody <laughs> they would ask me that use that every year just like keep recycling that so that's yeah. a good one I I would say like we I've had a guest on who met uh Prince William oh, so wow. I, I think I I don't know though I think you're kind of even with Prince William he had a picture though <laughs> I have pictures I've got pictures oh. but I mean to be honest so my grandmother's from Liverpool so meeting Prince William would be even more impressive I mean I don't know if more buff is going to watch this but I would love to meet William <laughs> Prince William I if Orr Buffett watches this, I I will be on the floor. <laughs> I think I've made it. <laughs> so, but tell me about the, your transition out of Apogee to Boost. Like, how, how did that happen for you? Really, I had a lot of friends in the insurtech space who, because I mean, because I was focused on tech and cyber, the first round of InsureTech, really in the commercial lines, like the specialty line space, was focused on cyber, right? There's a lot of technology coming in and people realize they can use it. So I actually saw a lot of friends move over to, you know, Corvus Coalition, at Bay, like all that, all those, the main cyber MGAs. And during the conversation with them, hearing about why they made the decision and this, that, and the other, and the opportunity there, I was just like, you know what? let's just pull the trigger. Let's, let's shake it up a bit. And luckily I had the support of my family and everything to make that decision because I went from working at a Berkshire Hathaway company, like an hour away and, you know, from me uh, to commuting to New York five days a week yeah. uh, for a seed round startup or a series A at the time. So it was a big shift. I liked the challenge. I liked taking it on. It was, that's kind of what drove it. Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned, you know, the support of your family. Like what, what was the conversation like when you first mentioned it to, to your wife being like, okay, so I know I have, I, I have a real good established position here. I have this real risky opportunity. <laughs> what do you think? Like, what was the conversation like? It was very much like a sit down. Let's talk <laughs> this through. Um, you know, it's got to make sense, right? We made sure that whatever company I went to had to make sense for the family. I mean, I have three kids at the time, uh, three kids, two dogs, a mortgage, and, <laughs> you know, all, all that goes along with that. So as long as it was really something I was excited about, uh, I think in my career, I've really, I've only ever pursued opportunities that I've been excited about, yeah. right? And I think that's key. Um, you know, I, I very much hold on to the, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, that cheesy mantra. But really Boost gave me the opportunity to kind of chase down all that tech opportunity and get involved in, get involved in it in a different way. And my wife saw that and my family saw that and everybody was very supportive and it, you know, in the leap. That first, that first uh, commute into New York was a bit of a, that was a bit of a shock, but an hour 45 each way, you know, an hour on the train, you know, that you can do a lot of uh, reading or game playing or watching whatever you need to do on the train in the morning. But it was a yeah, lot, a lot of, of you time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it was a lot of support. It was good. But the timing, I'm, I'm just like looking actually at the timing. So you started in February of 2020, though. So that I mean, come March that were you feeling any regret or un uncertainty about this jump or like nope I did this at the right time this is this is perfect no I was I was very happy <laughs> I lost the commute yeah that was like the part where I was like oh my god this is like great I, I, I get three and a half hours of my day back <clears throat> but no I, I think actually going into the pandemic it made me see how strong the company was you know from a different perspective I very much like to be in the office um, I like that culture. I think culture is a huge part of any company and kind of maintaining that and growing and adapting with that. 
and seeing how focused leadership was on maintaining that culture during remote, you know, complete transition to remote work, like everybody, I think was even more impressive, right? I had a whole new respect for the team itself because, you know, every Friday we had happy hours via Zoom and we did trivia and we focused very much on building a relationship with everybody because, you know, there's developers who you could put them in a hole and they would be happy and they're coding all day and that's their thing. Meanwhile, insurance people, we need some sort of face-to-face. I love the spontaneous collaboration. You lose a lot of that, but we did a very good job of bringing that in. I actually think it was even a better decision after all that happened, seeing how focused the company was on growth and how everybody was focused on the same mission. And how was that experience different though from being an Apogee that then gets acquired you know, and now, I mean, now you're working on just funding, you know, we're getting funding yourselves. I mean, what, how was that culture different for you for that experience? I should say. So at Apogee, when I went through that, I was too young to know what was going on. <laughs> I was just focused on selling insurance and having fun right now. I'm out there. I don't really, I spent however many years learning all about the industry. And yet I realized I don't really know what an underwriter does. So let's figure all that out. So the kind of the Berkshire acquisition, it was more so like, oh my God, I get free lunch (laughs) now every day and I get this, I get that. Whereas moving to Boost, it was very much like, okay, like this is a a unique opportunity here. Like it's, it was like a whole different appreciation up, up for it. And part of it was because of the time spent at Apogee, it positioned me well to understand that this is a huge opportunity. Yeah. And yeah. Now, now, now you have to get into Fusion MGA. So how, how, how did that opportunity come about? Fusion came about just because my specialty in cyber liability. I wanted to get back to moving solely in the cyberspace. Um, kind of, they are, Fusion is more as almost a pivot off of a company called Risk Analytics. Mm-hmm. Been around for quite some time, especially in the cyberspace, cyber liability risk management space. They worked with AIG and a lot of incumbents on some technology, and they were looking to make a pivot into the distribution space, into actually selling cyber liability. Uh, So because I come from that technology, I mean, I build computers next to me. I have a mining rig that I built together. I mine cryptocurrency. Um, I'm heavily involved in the technology. So hearing about the description of their tech really got me excited about the opportunity of really getting back to cyber and really taking it to another level, right? Taking it to the next level that will get IT people excited about working with cyber liability carriers. And I know that sounds dramatic, but it is, you know, something unique. Getting an IT person on board with cyber is an interesting experience. So, you know, talk to me though about cyber risks, because I think like the risks that we all think about is your network getting hacked, stealing your shit, <laughs> and like having to recover it, maybe having to like, are you ransom you, note the ransom stuff? Like, uh, and honestly, on my side, I don't know what's true and what's not. I don't know what people are. What's made like we heard a few years. It was like before the pandemic, like Philadelphia courts got hacked and they had to pay all this hundreds thousands of dollars in ransom. Like, so I only know that that aspect. So tell you're the expert here. Like, what what are the real risks that you know? companies like, you know, law firms, big companies, court services, like ever should should be really concerned with protecting. Yeah. So cyber is unique in that the exposure is constantly changing. Um, I mean, up until three years ago, ransomware four years ago, maybe ransomware for, you know, businesses wasn't really a thing. It wasn't as much of a concern. When I first started in the industry in 2008, cyber extortion was on every policy, which covers that ransomware exposure. But nobody really cared about it. It was free. We just gave it away. And now you've got companies that are like being torched because of all these things. It's a unique exposure because it's changing as fast as the attackers can to get ahead of everybody else. Um, For a long time, and it's driven by big claims, especially within the industry and what you are covering, it's driven by big events. So, you know, in 2008, I always go back to 2008 because that's when I started working at Apogee. straight out of college, it was all about data breaches, notification and credit monitoring because, and PCI, so the payment card industry because of 
the TJ Maxx breach, Heartland. Then it was Home Depot and PF Chang's and Target, obviously. Yeah. Uh, it's all it travels along with all these different companies because that's the path that these attackers go on. Uh, then it was social engineering, right? Social engineering was very big. That's huge for law firms. Anybody that's sitting on piles of cash, uh, it's basically an avenue to a quick payday. Uh, school districts were getting hit for some time with ransom or with social engineering over the summer because everybody's off. Nobody's there paying attention to what's going on. So if you can get in there and execute this transaction, you're golden. Ransomware is now the big thing. Um, there's a lot of Factors going on in there that could trigger notification of credit monitor, ransom payments, business interruption, pretty much your worst day as a company, right? That's what that comes down to. But ransomware has been around actually since the mid 80s. Mm -hmm. um, there's the history of ransomware is really interesting that some guy created the AIDS virus. That's what it was called. He sent around floppy disks. If you remember those, the five and a quarter inch floppy disks, <laughs> sent them around to AIDS researchers around the world to destroy their computers. And you had to actually send a check for like 300 something dollars to like a PO box in Venezuela. And he got caught eventually. I think he died a couple of years ago. He was a lepidopterist. So he had like a butterfly conservatory at one point. Wow. Again, we digress. So uh, <laughs> ransomware itself is you know the big thing because it does involve everything. It hits your company to the core. And I think that's why it's brought in a lot of the C-suite, a lot of the people that are responsible for revenue generation. Because now what's been typically re restricted to IT teams, OT, you know, kind of resume generating events on the tech side is now impacting the actual operations and the ability to generate revenue, which has driven it more into the kind of focus for a lot of businesses. Um, but it's constantly adapting. The carriers are constantly trying to figure out what's going on because you don't have 50 years of flood data to base your rates on. It's requires you to go out there and find additional information. Well, and it's always changing. So it just like, I, I, I almost feel as though like once you figure it out, it's too late. And now, yeah. now there's, you know, they're figuring out something new. And I'm always like, I, I always sit there on the side of, you know, the, the hackers for the black, black of a better term, like that's their job. Like, I don't, like, I'm just, it, I can't get around that part, like, you know, and they, they are okay with that. It's their job probably just because it's so lucrative, I guess. And, but to me, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> it is. It's a different mentality. Uh, it's really focused on, I mean, it started as a way of figuring out how I can make something happen or how I can use something in a way that it wasn't intended to get some sort of unexpected results or intended result. Like the idea of, remember Captain Crunch had the little whistles in there? <laughs> At one point, somebody discovered that the whistle sound was like the perfect whatever frequency to make phones do something that they didn't expect. So some guy started using these, these whistles and he would be able to make long distance calls, right? That kind of thing. It's really adapting that. Yeah, it's called that Captain Crunch. Really happened? Cr that never really heard happened. That. Yeah, it was a guy called Captain Crunch was his uh his tag his name um that's fascinating yeah captain crunch just look that one up actually yeah that's a good one that's a great story <laughs> captain crunch story but um no i mean that's the deal like they are constantly getting ahead not because they are in a lot of cases trying to find these things that's a relatively new development is people treating it like a commercial enterprise it comes out of the idea that I just got to keep challenging myself to figure out there's nothing more rewarding than the I'm in, right? Getting that, that next step. And because part of that designation, I have that kind of background is that I used to set up computers here and you try to hack the different computers and you set up a lab. I mean, growing up, I would, you know, not my finest moment, but I would crack passwords on AOL as like a little kid, just because I could. Right, just because I wanted to see if I could do it. And that's what it's all about. Now it's become a commercial enterprise, which has driven the efficiency and kind of the brutality of how everything's going because it is an enterprise. And that drives a lot of innovation on both sides, red team, blue team, on defensive and offensive. So there's a lot going on from a carrier perspective because we're embracing technology now, the MGA side. It allows us to maybe get a little bit ahead, not quite ahead, but just not far. I'm not as far behind, I think. Yeah. So who is your, your like target 
con- customer or consumer, you know, that, 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 you know, your, your company's like targeting for? Yeah. So, I mean, I still like focusing on kind of the small business, right. Who may still be using Chuck in a truck to handle their IT needs or, you know, now there's the MSSPs and MSPs. Uh, really what I want to do is provide a complete package. And this is what we want to do. A complete package with risk management and insurance and technology, right? The kind of the idea that technology and insurance are kind of combating or their, their battle is not, I don't think it's accurate. They complement each other, right? Any risk management platform or you know, program is, includes both insurance and other services, right? They, they complement each other. So what we try to do is bring people in, ultimately make them a better risk through a combination of one, the insurance, that's the reactive nature of it, but the proactive is you know, the, win- the, the scans that we see, the window dressing, right? That gets people an overview, a snapshot in time. But we've got technology that helps to monitor for threats, right? They can implement our technology into their own infrastructure and we're constantly updating them. The Fusion platform revolves around, or at the core of it is, a series of threat sensors that are around the world figuring out where malicious IPs are coming from. You know, what's the, the latest threat? And then constantly updating our network of insureds, right? We're almost crowdsourcing security because all of the insureds that fall under this net are constantly getting updated on what the issues are and potentially blocking those threats, um, creating a, a network of insureds that are stronger, right? We, we Kind of the mantra we have is join the fight. We want our insureds to be part of the fight by incorporating them into the network, into our communities so that we can constantly update them on the exposures proactively and really, you know, get information back from them. How can we make the program more secure? How can we make the technology more secure? And I think that shows a lot of benefit to the insurers and to insurers that are looking to bring in kind of, you know, provide that, that coverage for people. It sounds, you know, that um, community at like atmosphere of it with, with your insurers, it, it sounds almost like, you know, the ring doorbell, like mm-hmm. community, you know, like, you like you have these community alerts and, and you're part of this so you you know you know like if your neighbor has you know they saw something you know it pops up on on your thing it's kind of similar you know to to be you know an inclusive group um similar except i'm not jeff bezos so that would be <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> he started you know very humbly in a garage with one other guy you started the same way pretty much just in a small office so in a small office in my story. house yeah <laughs> But no, I mean, it is similar. It's the idea that we can all be, I mean, obviously that kind of sharing of data requires a lot of oversight and devotion to kind of privacy and whatnot. But I think the overall platform that allows us to create that kind of almost mesh network where everybody is protected because of the experience of everybody else. What's like the hot new scam that you're seeing these days? You remember a couple of years ago, it was like the Nigerian prince. Mm-hmm. You'd send like the five hundred dollars, and then they'd wire you a million dollars. Like, is there like what's like the trending internet scam these days? So there's a lot. I mean, aside from ransomware, because ransomware is obviously the big thing. Yeah. Um, but from the social engineering, because I love social engineering, the idea behind it, right? It's just interacting with people, trying to get them to do things they shouldn't be doing. Um, I love the CEO on the golf course. I need $54,000 in Android gift cards transferred immediately. Like that's ridiculous. I think one of the more malicious ones out there are now the calls to elderly, to grandparents saying, hey, grandma, I'm down in Mexico and I'm in prison. I need you to wire me $10,000 and they'll let me out of jail. That's very successful. That thing happened to my grandmother. There you go. And, and this was years and years ago. She got a call from a Tim, who's my brother, and said he was in jail and needed money. And my grandmother, I think my grand my grandfather was still no, it was just my grandmother. But like Ben called my mom. It's like Tim's in jail. My mom's like, oh my God, Tim's in jail. <laughs> <laughs> like, and she didn't end up sending any money, but like that happened. Like they, <laughs> and I, terrible yes but I mean, people need to know about it because 
like you just have to talk about it and get it out there because otherwise they're so susceptible. Anyone is susceptible to that because they pull on your heartstrings and like involve your family and you do anything for your family. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because you know people will have that a little bit. Yeah, that's a big one. I mean, there's also the the handwritten, not handwritten notes, but physical notes dropped off at people's homes saying, look, I was just looking around on the internet. I came across your computer. I didn't expect to find it. You know, it's okay. Like, but you know, you know what you have. I know what you have. If you pay me $10,000, I won't share it with anybody. Otherwise I'll send it out to all your friends and your family, right? Just vague threats like that. Everybody's got a skeleton in their closet. I mean, Which are that interesting. I, that's the deal. Everybody's like, I don't really do much interesting. So, yeah. but the people that do, they might spend five to right. 10K. I've gotten uh, that email before that's been like, oh, I saw the nasty site that you were on. I have video of you on the, like as insinuating I was on some like porn site and they're going to send this out this video of me on this like watching this thing it's like, it's like your family's right. being extra targeted <laughs> yeah I'm scared every time you have a personal story you attribute <laughs> it's not good well and also the gift card story someone in our office who i will not name their name fell fell victim to the gift card that person got an email from what they they thought was the ceo of our our firm and was like oh he needs me to get these iTunes gift cards for a client and was like about to like pack up his shit and go and buy the gift cards. <laughs> and, uh, then I think emailed that person. I, there was cleared it up before it went, you know, went to Best Buy or wherever he was going to go. <laughs> That's the deal. I mean, these they're smart, right? I mean, it doesn't have to hit a hundred percent of the time, but when it does hit, it, it's pretty lucrative for the investment that you put in to send those emails out or those text messages or whatnot. I do enjoy, you know, playing with them, like replying back, be like, oh, hey, no, no, no problem. I'm going down here. Like, what color do you want? I like the ones with the little robot on it. Like, can I get you iTunes ones? They're cheaper. And just playing around with them is Roll actually- the trolls. Exactly, yeah. Have, just having fun. Have you ever gotten any really good responses when you've responded? Eventually, oh, one, they froze my social security number. <laughs> that was wow. a good one. This is years ago when like the government was shut down and they were from the social security office. And I said, wait, I'm surprised you guys are working. I heard we're in the middle of a government <laughs> shutdown. And they're like, ha no, we're still here. Give us $10,000 and we'll unlock your social security number. And then it oh. paused and it came back. What do you mean the government is shut down? What does that mean? So it was ultimately like somebody had like gone to their manager was like this might be a thing and then they started quizzing me for information and foiled their plan i foiled yeah yeah definitely caused some issues that day and it ended abruptly when they were not very they sent a message saying they were not happy with me conversing with them and not paying them and then i should just never talk to them ever again no deal (laughs) exactly yeah yeah (laughs) like you reached out to me first you're just mad i responded and didn't just send you money yep they're so, literally trying to steal your identity. Like, what nerve? <laughs> <laughs> now, do you find, though, when, you know, when you have insurance or potential insurance that are like these small businesses, is there like some pushback being like, oh, we don't, we don't need that? Because I imagine very much that, so. that happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, the big thing is what people don't realize is that within six months of or 60% of small businesses go under within six months of having a breach if they don't have insurance, right? It's that much of an issue for these small businesses and making people realize that it doesn't matter. You are in a lot of cases, there are some targeted attacks, right? There are some, somebody wants to get into a massive organization, they see the opportunity there. But for the most part, you're just an IP address, right? You're just an address online. You're just an email address, whatever. It doesn't matter the size of your company. You are still a potential victim here. And, you know, if they can get in, I mean, you might have less security. People are online. They're looking at cat photos and all of a sudden they download the wrong image because it's going to be this funny meme and it's malware, right? doesn't matter who it is. You don't necessarily think that you've got credit card information, but let's say there's a ransomware event and you get shut down. It's not so much that you have to pay the ransom, but you're not generating any revenue. 
right? How many people can go 30, 60 days without actually operating a business and be able to succeed, be able to survive after that? So there's a big impact on these small businesses. I think don't, most people don't realize that could really have an issue on people's livelihoods, right? And whether that's the owners or the employees, what have you, it's, it's, only, it's a battle I've had for a lot of years. And, uh, you know, it's been an interesting one for those small businesses to get them to understand the exposure. It required a lot of visits. I love having calls with insurance and explaining the idea behind insurance and yeah. cyber insurance in particular, just because of that. Yeah. And I, I mean, what you don't, I think what smaller businesses might not even realize too, like say if it's like the local or a plumber or whatever, they, you know, they have their customers, they might have their credit card information, you know, you know, they, they have easy, like, oh, we're setting it up. We're so easy. You can make appointments online on our website and you can pay for our services online. Now, all of a sudden they have all your information. They get breached. They get their customer's information and they might not think they're a target, um, but they, it's, that's like easy pickings in a way. Yeah. And then there's a lot of different ways. So the way the state laws are set up, we finally have in the last couple of years, we finally rounded out all 51 jurisdictions to have individual privacy laws. But the thing that people don't get is if I'm in Pennsylvania and I have a data breach, I don't have to adhere to the laws in Pennsylvania. I have to adhere to, and let's say there's a thousand customers impacted. I have to adhere to the laws in the state that that customer lives, right? And there's a lot going on there. And one of the big things that, you know, stretches across all of them is that if you gave me your information, I'm the one who has to keep it secure. They don't care what I do with it afterwards. I can send it to however many cloud providers, service providers, whatever. But if that gets breached at the service provider level, I'm the one who has to deal with the notification, the credit monitoring, the impact on my name, um, really coordinating with everybody. There's an undertaking. It may not be as much, and maybe you can get reimbursed by your provider. Who knows? Yeah. But can you wait that 30 to 60 days until they pay you back? Right. Yeah, I feel like this is a good PSA. Yeah, there you go, the PSA. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, and isn't that the thing with the world all insurance? Like, you don't think you need it until, until you, you need it. <laughs> yeah, yes. we're in the business of worst case scenarios. It's always how I say it. Like, that's the idea. Like, I'm here. You don't ever want to hear from me again until it's the worst day of your life, right? The worst day in your business is the day where you need someone like an insurance agent, broker, adjuster, carrier, whoever is there to help you get back up and running. Uh, and that's what insurance is all about. That's as cheesy as it sounds. That's why I like insurance, right? It's always going to be there to protect you. Yeah. In theory. Well, yes, in theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we're just about out of time. And that was like actually a great way to like close up that portion. But I have to ask you your own question is what's the most interesting thing you've done this year? I, I You can't just well, give me the softball at the beginning of this question that you ask at the end of every interview. And then I'm like, well, I obviously need to know what to ask you. <laughs> that's a really good one. What have I done? Um, I basically, I've done a lot of stuff. I've consolidated three years worth of anniversaries into one without getting in trouble. Um, I've converted my son who loved baseball into playing lacrosse. That was a win. Um, you know, it's really, I think the biggest, the most interesting thing I've done is really making this move to fusion, yeah. right? Moving from an established company where, you know, I loved Boost. Mm-hmm. I loved what I was doing at Boost. It was great, but seeing the opportunity here. So, and I think my wife would agree, the most interesting decision I've made in the last year was moving over to Fusion MGA and really taking on that challenge of building a company again, right? And yeah. really diving deep and I mean, I love what I do. I love the insurance industry. I love cyber liability, the history of cyber, the history of insurance. So it just made sense for me to take that leap, at least from my mind. It was nice to hear my wife affirm that as well. But that's definitely the most interesting thing I've done. Well, and I think like she's probably, um, I'm putting thoughts in, making thoughts for her, but she's probably like, okay, we've done this before. It it worked out. So I have confidence that this is a a good opportunity for Mike this time too. Fingers crossed, yeah. <laughs> and, and good for you for convincing for convincing your son to pivot from baseball to lacrosse. The games are much faster and shorter. <laughs> I love lacrosse. It was definitely a uh, yeah, it was a tough one. 
a tough hurdle to get over, but we did it yesterday, actually. <laughs> so it's fresh. That's why it's on my mind. Oh. <laughs> well, it's like it's similar, like eye hand coordination. You just got to catch the ball and throw the ball versus, you know, make contact with the ball. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, Mike, thank you so much for, for joining us. I'm so, I'm so happy I connected with you and, you know, you put it out there about your, your move to fusion and your, you indulged, indulged me in, you know, on the phone and coming, coming on and talking to Melissa and I today. Uh, but for our, you know, for our listeners out there, just let them know where they can, can find you and fusion if they, they have any cyber needs or just want to like chat with you more about whatever they, they heard today. Yeah, so Fusion, the website's fusionmga.com. My email address is very, very easy. It's mike at fusionmga.com. That's kind of a pays it to get in early so you can get email addresses like that. I'm always accessible, always on LinkedIn. Um, I love just talking to people about insurance and cyber. I go to my high school career day to talk about insurance. And if you can make it interesting to a bunch of high schoolers, you can make it interesting to a lot of people. So feel free to reach out through fusionmga.com or hit me up on LinkedIn or my email. Again, Mike at fusionmga.com. Thank you so much for for coming on. Um, Thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure.